Have your Bible open first, Peter chapter 5. Have your journal to page 12. Hopefully you have a copy of our new journal that takes you through the rest of the book. And we're going to dive into the final chapter of this epistle. It begins with one of the more common metaphors used for the church. And that is of a flock. Can you say the word with me? Flock. You'll find this throughout the New Testament. Even in the Old Testament, often God refers to His people as a flock. And within a flock, there are shepherds and there are sheep. And this is exactly what Peter addresses in 1 Peter chapter 5. He addresses both shepherds and sheep, and he addresses them from this angle. How should shepherds lead, and how should sheep follow? So I want to answer those two questions, and, and actually we'll answer a third question as well, and that is how can we all live together in one flock? I think Peter answers all three questions in these first five verses of chapter 5. Before we read those, just a word of um, preview. For a bit, it will be somewhat informational this morning. Maybe even we could call it theological or maybe textual. I don't think that's bad at all. Some of you probably get a little weary, perhaps, of so much information or theology or text-driven material. Just know that it will lead us to being very exhortational very applicational. I think they always fit together, but sometimes in the applications, if you don't like that because we step on your toes, I'm in a no-win situation sometimes, right? Just be aware, we're going to kind of start pretty theological, pretty textual, pretty informational, but you'll see how that will lead its way to very applicational. In fact, I want to give you some pastoral nudges before you leave that I think you'll really appreciate and that we can all use to live together in humility. So let's, what do you say? We start this journey, 1 Peter 5, Follow along in your Bible. I'll use our lab this morning to kind of walk us through the different parts of the text, and then we'll kind of also take some notes. So here's what God's Word would say to us. Remember, it's the Word that does the work. So wherever you are, let's dive in, can we? Peter would write this, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And to the word of the Lord, the church says, Amen. Now I want you to notice, first of all, things about elders or as the text would call them, shepherds. For those who may be new to Christianity, for those who may be new to life within the church, which is the body of Christ, the collection of Christians in a local specific place, elders or shepherds are those who 
And you'll see in the text, they oversee the church. There's also another word we use more culturally. It's called pastor. And so those are the ones who are, and I'm going to use this word humbly, but they're in charge of the flock. They're the shepherds of the sheep, all right? And it's to those that Peter first addresses uh, these first four verses. Look what he says here. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. So within the church, within that group, there are those who were elders. They were shepherds. They were overseers. Peter says he's a fellow elder. And I, I like that because he, there he doesn't use apostle. You know, Paul would often say an apostle to establish his authority. And there's reasons for that I won't get into in this message. But Peter here really takes more of a relational runway with his readers. And he doesn't come in, let's say, with an authoritative stance. He instead says, say, I'm one with you. I'm one among you. I'm a fellow elder. And he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Notice some common words here that I think are very important. And I need to hurry here. Uh, and I can already tell I'm getting bogged in. This is great. This is just the, my, my, my weekly dilemma, I'm telling you. Um, but notice he uses the word sufferings and the word glory. And if you recall, in the last part of chapter 4, what did Peter say we as believers share? We share in Christ's sufferings and glory. We spent three weeks just on that section of Scripture in which we're, we talked about life as a sharer in Christ's sufferings and glory. So here he says now to the elders of which he is one, and he's also a sharer in the sufferings and the glory. Why does he start with elders? Here's why I think he does it. Because I often ask myself this. You know, here it begins with the word so. Like, why did Peter jump from the, the church as a whole, sharing in Christ's sufferings, to suddenly this exhortation to elders? Here's why. Because the church won't do what its leadership isn't doing. I mean, it, it, I, told, I told you this last week. It, it, in one sense, church is really a large endeavor of follow the leader. And if its leaders are not willing to embrace suffering and sharing Christ's sufferings and, of course, the glory that's to be revealed, if, if its leaders aren't embracing and modeling this kind of lifestyle, the church won't. And so I think in Peter's mind, he's thinking, okay, in light of what we know has to happen, let me start with the leadership. He starts with the elders, of which he is one. And he says, you're a partaker of the sufferings and of the glory. And so in light of that, he gives them really one command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The key verb being there, the word shepherd. Now, let me just talk to you again, kind of informationally, even grammatically and textually. This is the uh, verb form of the word shepherd. Uh, in some translations, you see the word feed. It's, it's, it's a word that indicates what shepherds do. So you could say, feed the flock of God that's among you. You could say, lead the flock of God that's among you. Incidentally, this is the word used for pastors in the New Testament, but the bulk amount of the time, the word is used in the verb form. In fact, catch this little bit of information. The noun form for pastor Shepherd is only used once in the New Testament. So, so here's what I take from that as a pastor. The position, it exists and it's true, but the practice is what we're after. 
Like we need to see the verb a whole lot more than the noun. Are you with me? Like let's do the work of pastoring way before we try to elevate ourselves into some position. Look, we're not sitting in some ivory tower with some kind of robe thinking we're something great. No, we are in the fold with the sheep, feeding, leading, guarding, protecting. We should smell like sheep. This is what Peter says. Shepherd the flock of God among you. You're with them. You're around them. You're near them. And so shepherd them. Feed them. Do what shepherds do. He explains the word shepherd, or I would say the word feed or guard or lead, protect. That's kind of what shepherds do. Remember, the flock is the metaphor. He, he provides a synonym for that with this phrase, exercising oversight. Do you see that? That's the word episkopos. Oh, by the way, here's some good mainline words for you. This is the word episkopos, meaning to provide oversight. The word elder here is the word presbyteros. So you hear Episcopalian, you hear Presbyterian, like, man, Todd, what's happening to you, right? These are just the actual literal words. Presbyteros, meaning an overseer, an elder. Episcopos, meaning the act of overseeing. It means to watch over. And that is what shepherds do. They watch over a flock, and so they lead it, they shepherd it, they feed it, they guard it, they protect it. This is what Peter's calling those elders to do. The leaders of the church, the pastors, I believe those are synonymous uh, with the word bishop in 1 Timothy 3. So you have some, a number of words in play here that speak to the role of pastor. And Peter here is not saying that these are the guys who you hire, per se. It's not wrong to employ a pastor vocationally. We get that from 1 Corinthians 9. But neither is it wrong or less significant for someone to be a pastor who doesn't receive their pay from the church. We have both kinds of elders here at First Family. We have elders who receive what we call double honor. They have the honor of being an elder and the honor of being paid for being an elder because they do well at preaching and teaching. That's what the Bible says. We have also the honor of having elders among us who may get their paycheck from principal or nationwide or an insurance company or, or self-employed or a mechanic in all kinds of different ways. What matters is, is the man qualified, according to Scripture, to lead the flock of God? Does he shepherd and exercise oversight? Does he watch over the sheep? He then really gives three ways elders should exercise oversight. Three ways they should lead. Remember, answering the question, how should shepherds lead, right? Here's the core of the answer. Not under compulsion, but willingly. There's the first way. So we're not, we don't force men to be elders. You don't talk them into it. We don't pressure them. It's a willing opportunity. And notice, as God would have you. So when the Holy Spirit of God leads a man to shepherd the flock as an elder, we want to recognize that and and. and and confirm that. It happens through the body and through the elders. Then there's a willing service. They're to uh, lead eagerly, but not for shameful gain. I love the King James translation here. It says, not for filthy lucre. In other words, you, you don't want to turn the pastorate into a means of profit. And by the way, it can happen. Now, the, the, the 
typical line for pastors is they don't make much money. I don't want to be humorous here and make light of that or say it's true or false. I simply want to say this. When Peter talks about not being an elder for shameful gain, it was true in this first century as it's true in the 21st century. There's a circuit you can get on. There's a club you can get in to write the books and speak at the conferences, and I'm pretty confident it's pretty lucrative. If that's your aim, don't be a pastor. Just start a business and write books, speak at conferences. There's no sin in making money, right? The sin is in saying you want to pastor the sheep willfully and voluntarily and, and, and not out of pressure or profit. If your real aim is profit, start a business, employ people. That's good work. Don't disguise it by saying, I want to be a pastor. That's when all my pastor friends say, ouch. None of you have to say ouch at that point, right? And then he says, thirdly, we're not to domineer over those in our charge, but we're to be exemplary. So notice there are three things not to do as elders lead. We're not to do it under compulsion or by pressure. We're not to do it for profit. And we're not to do it in a domineering fashion. Instead, we're to do it willingly, eagerly, and in an exemplary fashion. And here's what motivates all of that. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, we're waiting for the return of the chief shepherd, meaning we are then under shepherds, pastors, bishops, elders, shepherds. We're under shepherds. We'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Once you attach glory back to the glory in verse 1, and I think Peter here is saying that we have to keep our eyes on what's ahead and the approval and the vindication, the reward of the one that matters. It won't fade away. All your Facebook likes as a pastor, they'll fade. All your retweets, they'll fade. All the little 10-second, 60-second clips in which everyone applauds or, or likes, they'll fade. Here's what won't fade. When at the end of your pastoral journey, when at the end of your shepherding experience, the chief shepherd gives you a crown of glory. I don't know what that crown looks like. I'm not even sure uh, if it's one maybe like Christ wore, a crown of thorns. Maybe it's more like a kingly crown. I don't know. But it's one that won't fade, and it's one that shares in his glory. It's got weight and value. It's worth something. And so this kind of worth of, of the future reward drives and motivates pastors in the present to do this, to lead with willing watchfulness. She said, Todd, what's the job of the shepherd? How do shepherds lead according to 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4? What's the real core answer? We're to lead with willing watchfulness. Now, I just want to take a minute and, and walk you through a couple of things about the context. I think this is one of the reasons that, that Peter here encourages elders or shepherds not to do it under pressure. It's because he's aware that the, the, the scenario, the landscape is one of persecution. Remember, Peter was also involved in Acts chapter 8. When the whole church was scattered, 
But there's an interesting phrase in Acts 8. It says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So where it was most dangerous, the leaders stayed. What you don't want in that moment is a leader who says, well, I have to. You don't want your commander-in-chief, so to speak, of the spiritual army, which is Jesus Christ, yes, but you don't want the under-general. You don't want him there because he has to. You want him there because he wants to be there. Amen, church? So Peter's in, aware of the sufferings that exist, of the persecution that is on the landscape in this first century. And he says, your leaders must be men who aren't forced into it or, or don't see the landscape as a chance to make a profit. They're there because God led them there and they want to be there regardless of the cost. And because they know the great reward at the end, they endure and lead well. They watch and, and they guard and they feed and they protect. They're shepherds who are in the fold with the sheep. They're walking along life with you. That's how shepherds lead, according to 1 Peter 5, with willing watchfulness. Now, when you hear that, I hope that brings a smile to your face. But just be aware, that's uh, it's, it's very... Um, 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 it, it brings a sense of sobriety to pastors. Because when we talk about willing watchfulness... Here's what we're watching over. We're watching over your souls. Hebrews 13, 17 says this to the churches. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch for your souls. And so you know what your elders pray for every Tuesday morning? We pray for your physical needs, yes. We have a list of all of our members regular attenders, as best we know who the regular attenders are. We pray through those lists. We pray through it throughout the day. We have our own list. But more than the physical needs that we know about, you know what we pray for? is for your soul, your spiritual growth. That's what we're watching over. And so the writer of Hebrews would concur with Peter. This is what shepherds do. They exercise oversight. They watch willingly. And this is how they are to lead. Let's answer the second question, can we? How do sheep then follow this kind of shepherd? Let's go to the next verse. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. A lot shorter, isn't it? He's got four verses on elders, a half a verse on the younger or the rest of the church, and then another half a verse on all of the church. So if you're wondering where the mantle of responsibility lies, let's just say it clearly, it lies with leadership. Amen, church? Amen. That's why we say models are way more effective than mandates. We believe in copyability from every single one of our leaders in attendance, in serving, in giving, and how you share your faith and your Bible engagement. We want our leaders to model what we want every member to do. And so elders, staff, deacons, small group leaders, are you modeling this? Because models are way more effective than just simple mouthpieces. This is why he starts with the elders, gives him four verses. Here he says, likewise. And I believe, by the way, the word likewise here, if you were to trace it back, I believe it goes back probably, this is my opinion here, to those three 
negatives and positives. Just as elders shouldn't lead under pressure or for profit or in a domineering fashion, so you shouldn't follow in this way. Instead, here's how you should follow. You should follow in a way that's submissive. You could use the word subjected to the elders that are among you. Now, this is the tough verse, not in its length, but in its truth. This is where you can still say amen, much like you did in the last section, okay? But this is aimed more at you. The last one was aimed more at me, right? And here he says, to the rest of the body who are not elders, they're not presbyteros, they're younger. So there is some sense in which the elders are considered kind of older, or the word actually often means just gray-haired. Maybe no-haired, can we give it that too? There we go. He says the main role is to be subject to the elders. The word here means to voluntarily come up under. It's the same word used for wives to husbands. It's the same word used for mutual submission within the church family. And here in this context, Peter is saying to those who are not shepherds but are sheep, your primary goal is to be and I'm going to use this phrase, voluntarily cooperative with the elders. Let me just share with you what this word means even more definitionally. It was used in the military often to describe arranging the troops in a certain order to get the maximum opportunity for victory. It uh, often meant um, asking people to subject themselves in certain conditions voluntarily so that there'd be the best opportunity for flourishing of civilizations. In other words, it has the sense that you're making someone do something, but in reality, no one makes anybody do anything. It's always a voluntary effort to say, you know what, I'll come up under that leadership and do what's best so that we get the best victory or the best opportunity or the best situation. I mean, you're nodding with this. You know that. Every husband here is nodding because you can't make your wife do anything. You think you can sometimes, right? The truth is every wife who is submissive voluntarily comes up under her husband's leadership and says, for the flourishing of our family, I want to follow your leadership. The same thing is true in civilizations as we come up under governments, and the same thing is true in churches as we come up under our elders. It's so that there is the best opportunity for spiritual victory, the flourishing of God's people, for proper shepherding, which means guarding, protecting, feeding. And so he says to the younger, to the church, those who are not elders, be submissive, be subject, be voluntarily cooperative with your elders. Now, let me take you back again to Hebrews 13, 17. And I want you to hear the last part of this verse because it's quite stark to me how the writer of Hebrews says that you should obey your leaders and submit to them, which is much like 1 Peter 5, 5, because they watch for your souls. And then he says this, uh, do this so that they uh, do this with joy and not with groaning. So he says to the church... 
follow your leaders cooperatively, voluntarily, submissively, subjectively, because that way they're not groaning while they lead you. They're joyful while they lead you. And then he adds this phrase, which I think is so interesting. He says, for that would not be good for you. Isn't that interesting? You would think he would say this. Hey, follow your leaders. Be submissive to them. Cooperate because if they can do it with joy, that's good for them. You would think he would say that, but he doesn't. He says, be submissive and subject to your leaders. Follow them and obey them and watch for your souls. And so they, they can do this with joy because if they're not doing it with joy, that's not good for you. Here's what I think is going on in that text. Let me be very pastorally transparent with you. I think what the writer of Hebrews may be referencing is that when there isn't obedience to what God is saying through church leaders, and I mean by that the teaching of the Word, the feeding of God's people through the Scriptures, when the known commands are just disregarded, we're saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey the Lord. What kicks in is church accountability that culminates in church discipline. You know who that's not joyful for? You. Now, I'm not saying the leaders enjoy that either, but excommunication because of blatant, long-term disobedience, that's, a, that's not joyful for you. So the writer of Hebrews is on to something here. A posture of voluntary submission and cooperation with your elders as they teach you the word and lead you towards the Lord and help you grow and flourish spiritually is healthy and helpful because if you don't, if you keep disobeying and keep disregarding and avoid obeying God, the end result of that is not good for you. Say, Todd, what is the end result of that? Well, while we're on thin ice, let's skate a little bit, can we? Here's the end result of that. Matthew 18 says, typically one person will go to the other person. The person that's been sinned against, they'll go to the person who sinned and say, can we work this out? Can we talk this through? Most of the time, that solves the problem. In environments where there's humility, that works. When there's rebellion and stubbornness, it takes sometimes then two or three to go to that person and say, hey, it doesn't seem like the single person, the individual is able to kind of get through. Can we talk more about this? This may be a matter of weeks, could be months. There's no time in the scripture. I tend to think, based on what Paul told Timothy, this is a matter of months. Paul said to reprove rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. As a pastor, I take that to mean go more than the extra mile with the truth of Scripture in calling people to repentance. So you go one-on-one, you go two or three-on-one, if at some point there's just an insistence, I'm not obeying God. I'm not submitting to what our elders are teaching us from the Scriptures. I'm not going to do it. The Bible says, When that sin is prolonged, blatant, just embedded, that we then take it to the church and we dismiss them, we excommunicate them. That's kind of a harsh word, but it's a true word. In other words, we say you're you're actually acting like someone who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't love God and His Word, and so we're going to treat you as such now. And my personal perspective on this is that prior to excommunication, It's church accountability, and the act of church discipline is the excommunication. We can disagree on that. Some of you may say that the whole process is discipline. I'm fine with that. We're great friends, okay? But I've come to think in more recent years 
that the accountability is really what's in play and discussed, and then the act of excommunication is the actual act of discipline. And that's, a, that's not a joyful moment, and as Hebrews says, especially for the sheep. By the way, it's not just in Matthew we find this referenced. Paul told Timothy to be done with those who teach false things. Like, just don't give them a time of day. Don't answer their questions. Don't engage their conversations. He told Titus that if someone is divisive and you warn them twice, dismiss them. Now, listen very carefully to your pastor here. On a face value reading of Titus, it doesn't say there has to be a process in that, in that situation. You, you hear that, don't you? A divisive person is warned twice, and then the Scriptures say dismiss them. Now, I tend to think what's understood is the process of Matthew 18. So if you were to ask me, Todd, how would you handle that? I would say if someone's divisive, I would go to them with one person, then two or three, and then to the church. I think it's inherent in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. But at a face value reading, there may be room for shepherds to see a divisive person, warn them twice, and if they don't listen, say, oh, by the way, you can't come here anymore. Here's what I'm saying to you. The idea of shepherding and then the idea of sheep following submissively and voluntarily and cooperatively is not a small matter. It's a weighty issue. And I hope that's what you're hearing in this explanation. The weightiness that shepherds have to lead, not out of pressure or for profit in a dominating way, but just gently, humbly, willingly, and then for sheep to respond cooperatively, eagerly, willingly. When that happens, I think the next verse is a given. And I shouldn't say the next verse, it's the last half of this current verse. Look what he says. Clothe yourselves. There's that reflexive verb again. Something we do to ourselves. Here's an action we take. Which, by the way, I think if sheep took the actions of, verses, of verse 5a and elders took the actions of verses 1 through 4, then this would happen. We'd be clothing ourselves with humility toward one another. So in one sense, you can say Peter here is giving a command to the whole church now. All the sheep and the shepherds combined, here's your goal. But he could also be doing this, say, hey, if you'll do verses 1 to 4 and 5a, this will happen. So is it a command or is it more of a result? Take your pick. They both work. Clothe yourselves with humility, every one of you. Notice the word all here. It's a different word than elders and different than younger. So I take it, he's now just kind of putting his arms around the whole flock. And he says to leaders and followers, here's what must happen. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Here's why God opposes the proud. That is an offensive word, by the way. God puts a full court press on the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As I told the college kids Thursday night when I spoke to Campus Collective, embracing humility is, is, is not the question. Like, will you or won't you? That's not the question. The question is, how will you embrace your humility? <laughs> will you embrace it because God is doing a full court press on you and you have to embrace it? Or will you humble yourself? 
So get out of your mind the idea that, well, I'm not sure I'm going to accept humility. Oh, you'll accept it, trust me. The question is, how do you want it? So here, to all the church, he gives this instruction. Live visibly humbly or with visible humility. Now, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to kind of stretch you in regards to the text. I want you to stay with me. I still got four pastoral nudges. I'll get there. I think I can make this work on the time frame. But I want to show you something I've been meditating on for a number of weeks. The one word out of these five verses that has just kind of stuck in my teeth and that I've chewed on, I've shared it with the elders, we kind of meditated on it as well, is this word clothe. Here's why that word leaned into my heart Help me realize that what Peter's calling for from everyone is visible humility. Peter did not say this. I mean, it's an intentional choice of words here. It's, it's what you kind of put on. Much like Paul's exhortation to put on the new man, put off the old man. Here, Peter says, put something on the outside. It's called humility. Here's what he did not say. He didn't say develop humility, did he? He didn't say work on a humble attitude. The choice of language here is intriguing to me, and it caused me for weeks now to meditate on what does it look like? What does it look like for someone to see humility in me? And so this is a hard question to ask because what do we typically, and I would even say rightfully think, well, humility is the kind of thing that you just don't want to talk about. You can't say, hey, you seen my humbleness lately? Like, that's just not going to work. Would you agree? That doesn't work. And yet, Peter here doesn't say, develop, work on your humility. He says, hey, put something on that's noticeable. You put your clothes on. And here's how I kind of um, have kind of worked this out. I think I really want to appreciate the elders in helping me. And we helped each other just think about this word, clothe, and humility in this way. If you wore a new shirt, uh, if you wore a new pair of shoes, new pair of pants, a dress or a suit one day, and you had not worn that before, someone would probably say, hey, nice shirt, nice dress, nice suit, nice pair of shoes. If you continued wearing that, whether it's weekly or regularly or even daily, I hope it's not the shirt, but if you begin to wear that regularly, they don't say every time they see it, hey, nice shirt. Why? Because it's more or less a part of you. Like, that just kind of becomes who you are. Like, oh, that's Ben. He wears that shirt a lot. We like Iowa. He likes Iowa State. He wears that shirt a lot. Something like that, right? You with me? I don't know if he does or not. Here's my point. I think humility is like that for those who have really not yet embraced it. When your heart is like, well, I need to live with visible humility, you learn certain traits and habits that actually help you be humble. But at first, everyone notices, like, wow, you're talking different. You're acting different. And it can almost seem like you're trying to put forth a front. I've seen this in marriages a lot to where the real crux of the issue is the husband does not sacrifice for his wife for years, she has felt unloved, and so she's reached the end, and, and she's just about done, and 
she lays before him, you know, I just don't matter to you. I wish you would sacrifice and put my good above yours. He kind of goes through that whole thing. And so suddenly he realizes, wow, what have I done? They come to the pastor or one of the shepherds, the elders for counseling. They get it. And the, the recommendation, one of them is this. You need to start putting your wife first. Sacrifice for her. Ask her what her needs are. Uh, defer to her every time you can. Like, put her as number one in your life. And so he does. And the first time he does, when he says to her, you know what, that's a better idea. Let's do that. She goes, oh, you're just playing like you're humble now, aren't you? She kind of throws this out to him like, you don't mean that. You're just doing that because you know the, the pastor said do it. And it's hard for people who have struggled with pride to actually make the turn to be humble because to be humble in a visible way, you have to kind of do some things differently. But here's what I found. If you'll just stay at the task, be humble. I'm going to show you some ways to do that in a little bit. And embrace those uh, habits or actions in time. It will be like the new clothes that no one says look nice anymore. It'll just be what you wear. Like, oh, that's just, that's just how Ben is. Ben's always helping you get what you need. Ben's always giving up his time and he's deferring. That's just Ben. At first, it seemed like, oh, he's just playing the, the humble card. But no, when you begin to just keep living it, that's how you clothe yourself with humility. It becomes the natural outfit you wear. It does look new at a certain point, but then it becomes just normal. And when humility, church, hear this, hear this, hear this. When humility becomes the normal attire in a body, sheep and shepherds get along really well. That's why I think really at the crux of this set of five verses is this word humility. And so it's, though it's the third answer to the third question, how do we all live together? It's also the take-home truth which in a few words is this right here. I think this is 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5 in just a few words. Whether leading or following, be visibly draped in humility. Will you say this with me? Whether leading or following, be visibly draped in humility. Notice the choice of words here. It's drawn right from our text. To clothe yourselves with humility, all of you. Because you will experience humility one way or the other. God will oppose you and humble you, or you can embrace it and humble yourself. I'll tell you how I want my humility. <laughs> I would much rather embrace it and choose the wardrobe and put it on myself than have God put a full court press on me. In light of that, can I, in closing, give you four pieces of humble attire to wear? Now, I want to say there are many more. I believe many of you could add to this list. Perhaps in your small group, you'll want to do that. That's fantastic. But I want to give you at least four pieces of, um, to add to your wardrobe. We could call these four garments to wear. That would help you clothe yourself with humility. I'll give you some instruction and examples as well on these. First of all, admit your weaknesses and wrongs. This does not need a lot of explanation, does it? But it does need a prompting because this is not what we tend to do. We tend to act like Adam. 
that the minute we're found out, what do we do? We run and hide, and then we blame. Can I share with you something that we taught our children that I think has been helpful for me and Julie, but I think it's helped our kids as well? We didn't do it perfectly. We still have to work at this, but this is something that I think is true of human nature, and it can almost sound manipulative, so I would encourage you not to use it that way. It is true, though. And so that's why sometimes it can, it can be tempting to use it as a tool. And that is this, that when you mess up, you make a mistake, you sin, or, or just maybe it's not a sin, maybe it's an error. When your weaknesses show more than your strengths, when you're in those moments like, oh, this is not my best day, watch this. We taught our kids this, just own it. Because here's what human nature does. And this is where it could be manipulative, and you don't need to make it this way. But our human nature does this. When we see someone own their weaknesses and their wrongs and their failures and their sins and their shortcomings, we want to help them. But the minute you see someone try to blame or say, no, that's not my fault, you know what we do? We stick it to them. You know I'm telling you the truth. You see shortcomings and wrongs and sins that you do, they're like, they, they, all, they have Velcro. And when you own them, you're peeling the Velcro off so they don't stick. But when you try to run from them, someone will grab it and they'll make sure that Velcro finds you. <laughs> you can see this in our culture. And I'm not saying this is all good, but celebrities and athletes who mess up, but then they, they, they seem to own it. Man, the, the culture is so forgiving of them. You ever notice that? The phrase in our culture is, Americans got a short memory. And it's usually true of those who are kind of upfront and honest about their problems. But let the person say, not me, not my fault, that didn't happen, or I'm not to blame. And the culture, our human nature has a way to try to find a way to stick it to them anyway. So we just taught our kids this, when you mess up, when you sin, when even a weakness, and it's not a sin or a shortcoming, let's just kind of get that on the table soon. And you'll be surprised how many folks will run to help you. I think if you were to ask our kids, they would say that when they've done that, that has been the case. And I would say in our life as a married couple and even as a pastor with you, I've experienced that among our elders. So here's a, an item of clothing that I think will help you as you pursue humility. Admit your weaknesses and wrongs. If I wanted to give you one verse for it, I would say, here's James, confess your faults one to another. I hope your small group environment is this way, that you can have a place to talk about your shortcomings, when you've sinned and how God's grace has forgiven you and how you're taking strides to really see sanctification take deep root in your life. Because in that environment is where we learn how to be humble. We put on this piece of clothing that displays humility. Second of all, defer your rights. This is probably the one that's the hardest to navigate because it's easy when it's a right that you're not that stoked about. Like, hey, where do you want to eat tonight? And you say, oh, I don't care. And then so the other spouse tells you and then you suddenly care. So we can just correct here. If you say you don't care, hold that position, right? Don't pipe back in later with some opinion. That's an easy fix because the truth is where you eat isn't a big deal for most of us. If there's dietary, medical things, that's different. But in the general course of life, if you say, I don't care, then whatever you do, don't back that truck up. 
You can give that right away because it's not a big deal. But what do you do when you really hold something pretty firmly? It's a, it's a, a situation where you feel like, I, I, can't, I can't budge on this. But you have someone else close to you, maybe in your church, your small group, your family. And they say, well, we just, we're not budging on this. And they clash. What do you do then? Here's a concept that has helped our family, and I think it's helped me as a pastor. And that is, I believe in what I call the arenas of authority. Now listen very carefully. I do believe, and I'm not saying this because I'm your pastor, because I have been on the other end of this as well. But I do believe, at the end of the day, it's always somebody's call to make. Whose call is it? And that's the person that probably has to own the call. And then even though there's input and um, feedback, at some point, those who hear the call have to be willing to, to follow that call. Not everyone can get their way all the time. And the church said, so how do we make that decision? I think it's arenas of authority. And so whoever actually is and has the authority... It's their call to make, and then those others should defer to that with humility. Is this easy? No. But does it work? I would say to you, from Scripture and experience, yes. I've done this with Julie multiple times. We'll have this talk about things we want to do. It could be a vacation, how to spend money. Maybe when the kids were home, maybe a discipline thing. And at some point... Let's say we would disagree and we were at the end of the decision and we just held two things pretty tightly that were in opposition. In all candor, if it was really within the home and the walls, that's her arena. She's the manager of the home. That's where she thrives. That's was, that was her job. I'm her head, the Bible says, the head of my wife. But in, in, in many ways, how that home runs day to day, I'm responsible, but she's the manager. And so I would often say, you know what? I defer to you on this. I'll, I'll follow your lead on this. That's not me in a weird way um, abdicating. That's me realizing that in that arena, she's the one who's got to implement and pay the consequence for something that doesn't go right. Are you with me? So I'm going to say, I'm support you. I defer. Often she would say to me, hey, this has got implications outside of even what I'm doing. I'll defer to you. And so I would make a decision maybe she didn't completely agree with, but it's my call. She would defer. And so there'd be this support to the kids Support even to each other. Later, we've agreed years ago, we're never going to question a decision that, some, that one of us made in a way that kind of, you know, sells them out like, well, I remember when you did that. You know, Proverbs says this, if you repeat a matter, you separate even the very best of friends. And so we said, once we decide, we're not perfect, but we're not going to repeat the matter. We can bring it up and say, hey, remember last time? Maybe we should learn from that. We can use plural pronouns like we and us. I'm not going to throw you under the bus 10 years later. I'm not doing that. So there's this idea of arenas of authority. I think it works in church. Let's say your small group's meeting, and you're doing some things different than other small groups, but they don't conflict church values. Pastor Travis is probably going to give you a lot of freedom to work that out in your own arena. And your small group should defer to you and say, we're going to kind of take this approach. But the minute your small group conflicts with church values, guess what? You're with the authority there is no longer yours. It's the church and the elders. And so the arena of authority changes. So the elders can say to you, hey, we need your small group now to do this instead. So don't hear this as someone trying to domineer over you. Hear this as a practical way to try to navigate 
deferring your rights because deferring your rights is a beautiful way to display humility. When you don't get your way, what will you do? When it's not your call to make, can you live with it? If the answer is no, I can never live with it unless I make the call. You need humility. You're too proud. And so I just want to encourage you. This is some practical ways to try to put on this garment that I think is a a humble piece of clothing. It's not all about it. It's not perfect. But deferring your rights is one way to display humility. Number three, credit others. Just point to those who've enabled you to accomplish or succeed. You know, you should always consider yourself like a turtle on a fence post. You didn't get there by yourself. Amen? And so when, when someone compliments you, just find a way to defer, to redirect, to deflect. You can be gracious and say, hey, thank you. I'm so thankful that. And you can then mention someone else's name. You can mention maybe the team involved. I just found that if, that if you're always crediting others, it pushes back pride and welcomes humility. And people see it and hear it, and they begin to realize, oh, this is just kind of the way he is. This is kind of the way she is. They know they're part of a bigger picture all the time. They're not like the Lone Ranger or a single star. They're not a celebrity. They're just part of a team. That's humility in action. That's wearing clothing that displays humility. And then lastly, listen to understand, not just respond. Often we have conversations, and you're just waiting for the person to finish so you can say what you've been wanting to say for 10 minutes. That's not a conversation. That's a battle. But often, we don't know how to have conversations. I mean, I've had this happen. You have too, where you engage with someone, and then it turns into a lecture. Like they have the ping pong ball. And instead of hitting it back to you, they just hold it. And a conversation is a ping pong match. I have the ball. I serve it to you. You receive it. Then you serve it back to me. And so we exchange a conversation. It's not a battle and it's not a lecture. In those kind of conversations that are legit and they're working, you know, back and forth, here's a really good tip, a, a good way to kind of visually show humility. When someone... Um, relays information. Let's say it's a little more of a serious nature. And they're talking with you about something. I think this is, and this is not anything new. You guys probably do a lot of this. Just say, so if I heard you right, what you're saying is, and just make sure you heard them well. Repeat to them what you heard. And I have found that often I didn't hear it. Well, this works great with Julie. So if I heard you right, you want me to pick this up from the store on my home from work? No, don't pick that up. Pick this up. Oh, okay, you know. That's a little hyperbolic, but you get the point, right? I have also found that questions in general really provide an avenue for you to display humility. Someone says something and you're like, oh, I didn't know that. So you say, can you tell me more about that? I wasn't aware of that. Often we don't want to ask questions because we think it shows ignorance. Actually, it shows curiosity. And curiosity is usually the trait of someone who's humble. They realize, I don't know everything. I don't know much about you or the situation or the subject, so hey, tell me more. So when you're in a conversation, listen to understand that happens through questions. Don't just listen so you can respond with your opinion as soon as they're done. This is hard work. But these are four humble garments that if we were to put these on, 
I think we'd be pleasantly surprised at the amount of, of um, easeability that would begin to surface in our relationships as we are willingly, eagerly, cooperatively, voluntarily leading the sheep and as the sheep are doing the same thing in how they submit to the shepherds. And at the end of the day, when this begins to occur, watch this. What we have is Peter's end game occurring in the church. You say, what's Peter's end game? I know I've held you along, but just listen very carefully. Peter's end game is this, that the church in the world would have a posture of humble submission. I'd remind you, if you were to read all five chapters in a row, which we will in a few weeks, by the way, when we finish the book, we're going to read the whole book all the way through again. You could not get away from this overall contextual thrust in the world. Don't fight back to get your way. Trust your souls to your creator. Submit to him. He's got you. Think about what's coming, not just what is. There's glory to be shared. There's glory to be revealed. There's something far greater than the power of man, the fear of man. There's the fear of God and the power of God. And humility puts us in touch with that. It shapes our perspective, gives us long-distance eyes, and pride does the opposite. So as we wear humility, we actually affect our perspective and our vision and our, our ability to see what God's doing on the larger scale. And that helps us endure much better when things down here just aren't going like we like. When they're out of our control and we can't change them, humility steps in as the antidote and says, I'll get you to the end safe and sound.